Good morning, Hope Church. My name is Brian Enos, and I'll be reading today's scripture for us. It's the book of James, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away, even while they go about their business. We are continuing in the letter of James, and if you were with us when we started a few weeks ago, I mentioned that James is going to introduce three topics, and then he's going to circle around those topics and give extended applications to each of those, and those three topics are the topics of suffering, verses 2 and four, through 4, wisdom, verses 5 through 8, and now money and wealth, verses 9 to 11. And I even titled those sermons, and including this one, with these categories. James wants us to suffer purposefully, to live wisely, and to prosper humbly. And these are the ways that James ministers into our lives. And I worry, I worry about this topic because it's just going to be a hard one for us to fully comprehend. Not, not, not because it's any more intellectually challenging than the others, but because of the context in which we live or were born and we understand. In fact, if you look at the American evangelical church, there is likely one particular sin or vice that has been ignored or excused the most, and it's materialism. Plain and simple, we are in, as I'll talk about in a minute, the wealthiest country in the world, arguably the wealthiest country that's ever existed, and materialism is just the starting assumption. It's hard to even know the impact of wealth and money and financial privilege that we have. Now, in our, our, our Christian culture, we've got numerous red flag things that we flag. Somebody's speaking with words they're not supposed to use, we flag it. And certainly, sexual sins are the ones we fight against the most. But I worry that sins of materialism can ebb and flow in and around our lives and our churches, and nobody flags us for it. There's the least amount of accountability. We have entire programs for our phones or computers. Covenant Eyes is an example that will flag if for some reason we go to a website or watch something that's inappropriate. But is there a program for our bank accounts or our spending habits? we could be entrenched in a love of money. Nobody would ever know, as long as we don't say the wrong words in public or get caught looking at the wrong things. Our materialism, like a cancer, can eat away at our souls. And nobody ever calls it out. Well, to be frank, Jesus spoke way more about a love of money than he did swear words or even sexual sin. 
It doesn't mean Jesus wasn't against those. The Bible speaks about speaking what is right and true and good, and, 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 our, and our, our, our language should reflect that. James will talk about that. And the Bible's loaded with comments about proper sexuality and, and, and the issues of the body, filled with them. But four to five times more, God's Word talks about the love of money. So I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to minister to us through His Word. These three short little verses are not hard to understand, but it will take the power of the Spirit for our souls to be penetrated by the reality of its truth. Let's pray. Father, we ask for You to minister to those of us who are here, who hear Your Word. We ask for You to care and tend to our souls as the chief shepherd and guardian of our souls. Let the song we just sang, Be Thou My Vision, O Lord of my heart, that my heart's desire would be formed and shaped by the gospel and by my Lord. So minister to us now through your powerful word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When you're at the top of your notes, I give you what I think the theme is. It's just going to take some time to flesh it out. But here's the message James 1, 9-11 is saying. Christians are to live out their socioeconomic status with the perspective of their identity in Christ. Right. So the, the short of it is, your identity in Christ and your nature as a Christian determines how you live out whatever wealth status you have. Whether you are, according to verse 9, in humble circumstances, or whether you're verse 10 and 11, the rich. Either way, it is not your socioeconomic status that defines who you are or controls how you live. It is your identity as a Christian. These verses, and James in general, doesn't just pick on one side. These verses compare and contrast the two ends of the socioeconomic situation. Again, greed isn't just found among the wealthy. If you're wealthy, you savor what you have. If you're poor, you're addicted to craving for it. Either way, it can control you and own you. Having it or wanting it are two sides of the same coin. But let me give you some context. We, we probably should define poverty and wealth for our own context. And I give you in your notes there a little summary, a global wealth report from 2021. It takes a while for these to come. This is the most recent data we have. And I give you a little bit of stats on other nations in our world. The nations on the left column, the middle column there is the median wealth per adult. And finally, on the far right there is the share of world wealth owned by that particular country. If you were in Afghanistan, born and raised, your, the median wealth per adult is $2,100. How many of us have more than that in our accounts right now? Not just a net worth. And look at the share, 0.01%. The United States is 3,100 times richer than Afghanistan. Ghana, Africa, close friend in seminary was from Ghana, Africa. Median wealth, $7,600, 0.03% of the share of world wealth. Poland, a country 
We as a church have visited and ministered to, we support missionary and work going on over there. $50,000 median wealth per adult, 0.3%. America is 105 times richer of the share of world wealth in Poland. China, you hear about that much in the news, this country? 76,000, but as large as China is, its share of world wealth is just over 18%. Great Britain, 309 median adult per adult, 3.5%. The U.S. is nine times richer. Finally, the U.S., Median wealth per adult is over half a million dollars. There's only one country that actually beats the U.S., and that is Switzerland. But Switzerland's share of world wealth is 1.1%. The United States, one country, has nearly one-third of the world's wealth. There is no way. There is no way that doesn't factor in to what we experience on a regular basis. It's impossible. We're dealing with massive wealth inequality between, think of it this way, don't just think nations, don't just think politics. Think a local church in southern Afghanistan and compare that church to a church like ours in the northern suburb of Rockford, Illinois. What's the wealth of those two congregations? What access and resources do they have? Think of the benefits that you get from living in the wealthiest country in the world. Benefits in transportation and roads. Benefits in schools. Economic bargaining power for jobs. Cost for goods. Value of the dollar. Military might and many other social resources. Not to be fair, wealth is more felt than a stat. It's more, it's more perceived, isn't it? But probably most of us, when we think of wealth, we think of like an NFL quarterback who's making $50 million in a year. Probably not the best comparison. When you compare the country you live in versus other countries, there's a world of difference. When I was in seminary for a couple years in Dallas, Texas, there was a brother there who was studying... And I, I, I got to meet him and his son and his wife. And he told me the story. When he was in India, his first son was born, and the umbilical cord was tied around this little boy's neck for so long, they weren't sure he was going to survive. Well, they lived in this tiny little village. There was no hospital nearby. There was no ambulance that would come and be there within however many minutes. There was no physician or doctor. So the midwife quickly wrapped this man's little son into his, in, in, into his, put him in his arms. The dad ran out of the tent, grabbed a bicycle, put the baby in a basket in the front of the bicycle, and had to ride his bicycle an hour and a half to get to the nearest medical facility. And he told me, even now, this is years later because they had another son. That, and this son was now 12 or 13 years old. Even years later when he's telling me this in between classes, he's, te- he's tearing up. He says, I rode as fast as my legs would push me, feeling immense pain in my legs, and I would not stop. 
because I didn't know if my son was going to make it. And by the time he arrived, his son had already passed. Now, how many of you, if there was an issue with your baby, had to put it in a bicycle basket? Oh, by the way, do you think he had a bicycle lane in paved roads? No. You think he had a cell phone or phone access he could use? No. He's driving down dirt gravel roads on a cheaply built bike for an hour and a half. The son was pronounced dead. They wrapped him back up, and he put the baby back into his basket and drove back and handed the baby to his wife, and they did a service at a funeral for their son. When they moved to the United States of America, within 9 to 12 months, his the, the son that, the, their next son, the son that survived, went from being 85 pounds to somewhere near 135 pounds. And he'd only grown just about an inch or so. But the kind of quality of food, like protein, he has not had in his country. Now, you might be interested to hear this. That students from that seminary, that seminary's been around for 98 years, Dallas Theological Seminary, great place. That school's school been around for 98 years, and in those 98 years, about 40 to 45% of the students actually come for, from overseas. And you would assume that of, those, of these graduates, the majority of them would go back to their country, right? That's why they came. This brother that I'm telling you, when he graduated from Dallas, where did he go? He went to India, which is where he's from, which is why he came in the first place. Because if they don't have a hospital, they probably don't have a seminary with a, thousand, a couple thousand books sitting around for them to study. So he comes to the U.S. to study, and then he goes back to India. But interestingly, 75% of the graduates from that seminary, not only did they not go back to their country, they actually never left Dallas-Fort Worth area. Now that's all the graduates. That's not just the international students. The majority of people that study at this seminary never leave Dallas Fort. If you ever go to Dallas Fort Worth, you wonder why there's so many churches? But think of how many international students leave South Korea, North Korea, various countries in the continent of Africa, and India, China, and they come, and what do they do? Like this friend of mine, his son grows. He, he puts on healthy mass. He has precision professional doctors that see him all the time. The roads are paved. They have, they have a water source in their house. They don't have to walk a quarter of a mile just to get a drink of water. They have it in their own home. And all of a sudden, it's kind of hard to want to go back. And at least for the students at that school, 75% of them never even leave the county. So think of the access, and maybe this is hard to compare. Maybe you, haven't, maybe you weren't born and raised in Ghana, and then you moved and you joined the Hananiga School District. But think of the benefits you have in education, in physical comforts, in medical care, in entertainment, travel, and safety. And ask yourself the question, is that average? Like, is that the norm? So however we want to look at this text, we at least have to put it in a bit of our own context. 
Again, James isn't afraid to talk to both sides. He's, he's not just going to rip on the rich moment. He'll, he'll speak just as fiercely and forcefully to the poor. But you and I have to do the work with the Spirit's help to say, Lord, help me see myself. Like going to the doctor and you have a PET scan or a CAT scan or an MRI. You don't know if it's broken. You don't know if there, you can't see it for yourself. You need a scan to determine what's really going on inside. Lord, help us. Scan us to see how we in the richest country in the world might have a materialistic cancer eating us from the inside out. And the main thing we're worried about is cuss words. Well, let's look at the text. Verse 9. It's short, but it's potent. And it is important to note the reversal that James is teaching. So here's the statement in verse 9. I hope you have your Bibles to look at it. Believers in humble circumstances, that's the poor, the poor and powerless, ought to take pride in their high position. Now again, if, if you're kind of struck by that, that's the reverse, right? Aren't you going to sympathize with me, God? Aren't you going to give me hope for my best life now? Aren't you just going to fix the problem? Notice it's a perspective that's being taken. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. Well, let me define that because that might feel strange. James says such a person is to take pride in or boast. In Scripture, every command of taking pride or boasting is not urging thoughts of self-importance, but the joyous pride experienced by the person who values what God values. So, so, so notice where the command is going to go. James is commanding the poor brother or sister to put their pride in something other than their wealth or lack thereof. And what is that other thing? Their high position. The language of the Christian's high position is always in Scripture about a Christian's spiritual status in relationship to Christ, that they are citizens of the heavenly realm. Notice there's no command for your best life now. There's no, hey, if you give a certain amount, God will bless it tenfold. Actually, nothing is said to you about whether you will make more income or not. It is simply saying you are not putting your body weight you are not grounding your identity. You are not finding your value or your purpose in your lack thereof. Instead, what you're doing is grasping on to where you have true eternal value, and there you put your body weight. It means that James is exhorting the Christian not to root themselves in their socioeconomic status. Your lot in life is not to be your primary marker of identification. And where does that lot come? What if you were born in southern India? What if you were born in America 200 years ago, but your skin was dark and not white? What about things like the particular time in which you're born, or the family from which you come? Or what about giftings? There's going to be people 
as sickening as it is, that might make $50 million a year because they can throw a football 70 yards and hit somebody in the numbers. I throw a football and my shoulder just hurts. And the ball looks like a duck. Here's the specific exhortation. James is commanding poor Christians to embody their poverty and powerlessness as heirs of the glorious kingdom of God and as beneficiaries of all the riches God the Father intends to bestow upon his children. You are to embody your condition knowing that you are beneficiaries of all the wealth in creation. You are heirs of God and his kingdom. So think of it this way, and I'll use this example for the rich as well. You, you, let's say you have a bum knee, your leg is hurting, or an ankle, whatever it may be. One of your legs is weaker or injured. So what do you do when one leg is weaker? You rely on the other leg. You're just more cognizant to balance or put pressure with the other leg to baby a bit your weaker leg. So the poor Christian is counseled by God to put their body weight on the strength of their identity, which is not their human condition or the money that they may have, but their identity in Christ. Not easy to do. Let's look at the rich. James then turns to those in the higher end of the socioeconomic spectrum, the wealthy and the powerful. Here's what he says, but the rich should take pride, there's that same term, in their humiliation. Remember, pride is not their self-importance, but the joyous pride experienced by the person who values what God values. The language of the Christian's humiliation looks at the status of the Christian from the opposite perspective of the poor. If the poor is being told, before God, you are an heir to the kingdom, embrace that identity. To the rich, God is saying, you are a beggar who comes to me with nothing. We come to Christ with nothing and in need of everything. We are beggars before God. We may be kings and presidents and prime ministers of the earth, but before God we are slaves. This is not to deny our personhood made in God's image. It's to learn our place. We may be kings of the earth, but our king, Jesus Christ, served and suffered for us. The end of verse 10, and really verse 11, is the proof. Again, beware that James feels like the rich might need the most help to get this through their heads. So the, the end of verse 10 and all of verse 11 is almost a quote from Isaiah 46 through 8. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation since or because they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Like a beautiful flower blossoms and displays itself in the fullness of its glory, so also in due course it withers and dies and is seen no more. Maybe a, maybe a potent image that Isaiah 4, 
40 wouldn't have been thinking of is a firework, which ex- just ex- fills the sky with beauty and glory, and your senses are overwhelmed by its power, but don't blink too many times. Because before you know it, all of a sudden, all that's left is just fragments of smoke that you can partially see in the sky. And if you blink a few more times, it's just utter darkness. And you never have evidence that it was there in the first place. It's just gone. So wealth and power is as fleeting as a flower or a firework. This means that James is again exhorting the Christian not to root themselves in their socioeconomic status. Your lot in life is not to be your primary marker of identification. Your identity is Christ and His kingdom. So to be specific, James is commanding wealthy Christians to embody their wealth and power as slaves of the King of Kings and as unworthy recipients of the grace of a holy and yet merciful God. So to go back to that imagery, you've got a weakened leg and a stronger leg. And for the rich, rather than relying on the stronger leg to support the weak, you actually rely on the weaker leg to support the strong. How can we live this out? Jesus gives us a small example. I put in your notes a text from Philippians 2, 5-8. If we look at that text, we see how Jesus depicts for us what it means to embody our earthly status with a heavenly perspective. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Notice that. This belongs to you already. By the gift of Christ and the power of the Spirit, this is what you can do. And then it explains how Christ did it. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Did you you hear that? Maybe you're familiar with this more well-known text. But did you hear that? Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God. Like, he didn't consider it something to be used. I would have considered it all the time. The moment that first lash would have hit my back and the skin shredded off it, I would have wanted to annihilate all those Roman soldiers. And imagine if that was you or me and you had the full power to do so. Yet Jesus did not count that as an act he would perform. He didn't utilize the full power that he has, the full authority that he has. He allowed himself to be mistreated So that you and I could receive the life that he gave on our behalf. Again, Philippians. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He gave off. He released. He relinquished rights. How do we relinquish rights? Are we fighting for our rights all the time? How countercultural is this going to be? You have, but you don't claim. 
You own and have rights, but you relinquish? How in the world, besides the miraculous grace of God, will this ever take place in any of our lives? But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Again, that Greek word doulos is probably better translated slave. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Notice that language of obedience. Jesus did not grasp his status but took on the form of a servant or slave. This was described by Scripture as his obedience. So how do we take this today? Be aware, Jesus warned us, you will either serve God or money. So which is it for you? And how do you even know? How do you, in the wealthiest country in the world, know whether all of the privileges and comforts that you were born with, you've never tasted anything different? How do you know if you're sacrificially not counting those something to be grasped, or they've actually manipulated your soul and your heart in such a way that they own you more than you realize? Oh, and, and re- realize, realize the temptations of Jesus that Satan did. When Satan tempted Jesus, what did he tempt him with? He offered him everything, the whole world. Wouldn't it be interesting to think about the reality that it, the best way to avoid people to focus on Christ is just to give them everything. Overload them. Spoil them rotten. Make them feel entitled. So that when God takes a little thing away in their life, guess who they're mad at? They even have the audacity to get mad at God. Because they've literally been entitled. Spoiled. With wealth and riches. The kingdoms of the world. This text today speaks both to the poor and the rich to those who devote themselves to the wealth they want and those who devote themselves to the wealth they have. Whether they want it or they have it, it's an idol. Christians, in sharp contrast, devote themselves to Christ. Again, the issue is not whether wealth is bad. That's actually the wrong question. The issue is how bound are we to wealth? Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. You just sang that. So did I. And your heart will love either God or money. So let me, let me give a couple tests. One would be the devotion test. Consider this like a stress test. But no one's going to have to run the treadmill yet. Here's how you'll know when you are rooting yourself in your earthly status and not your heavenly status. You want to know what it is? It's what happens when something is taken away. Like, t- let something be taken away. It doesn't even need to be money. All of a sudden, somebody takes away health. Boom, what you going to do? Someone's going to take away a loved one. Boom, what you going to do? 
Someone's going to change something in your life in some way. What are you going to do? Like You'll know quick if your body weight was on that because you crumble and fall real quick. Well, how about the generosity test? A second test. How much of my wealth do I give to the Lord? Now, again, there, could be, there's, there are people in our congregation that actually should be giving nothing to the Lord because they're barely surviving. It might even be the church that's supporting them. There are others in our very church that could give half of their income and still live comfortably. What are they supposed to do? How do I know if I'm actually owned by a love of money and materialism? How do I know? In the wealthiest country in the world, where literally we are precise about the comfort of our pillows and have little protectors for our hands around our coffee cups in five or six dollar coffee and have computers in every single one of our pockets and an ambulance that if we called right now could be here in just a few minutes and take you to a high-level medical facility to treat you. And you probably in major cities drove in paved roads with sidewalks and streetlights with proper sanitation. Is that normal? Like, is that the standard? And how do I know if I haven't become entitled by that? My love of things owns me, then I just keep raising the bar because I'm owned by my possessions. I don't own them. So how can we seek to embody our earthly status with a heavenly perspective? Here's three truths to confess as we close. Number one, here's a truth to confess that we must confess with our hearts. This is, this is the be thou my vision, O Lord of my hearts. Number one, when I became a Christian, I gave my life, body and soul to Christ. Like, to live is Christ. That is not just a doctrinal statement that I quote. That has to be a truth I embody. My life is Christ's. I will trust Him every step of the way. He owns me. He's the king. I'm the slave. And I say that whether I'm prime minister or president or pauper. Second truth we confess, everything in my life now is redefined by Christ. Everything. Not one thing is untouched. It's not like it's just fire insurance or an app for a devotional encouragement from time to time. Like everything is redefined. My body, my career, my money, my family, my very purpose, it's all redefined. Like Romans 12, Paul says that we are a living sacrifice. That's burned up. Devoured by flames. Offered to God in full. We are set apart to be pleasing to Him. Brothers and sisters, if we have been catechized more by our own culture and world, we literally just make Jesus an add-on because like house insurance and car insurance, we want eternal insurance. But it's not a true ownership where I belong to Him. Finally, 
The last truth to confess, my status in this life does not define me. Here's the tough one. It is simply the place from which I love God, love neighbor, and love one another. This requires us to discipline ourselves like the obedient actions of Christ to apply a heavenly perspective to our earthly position. Why do so many international students go to Dallas, Texas for four years of seminary and never leave? They want good things for their kids, don't you? They want good things for their spouse. They want the treatments that their bodies can get with some of the best physicians on the planet in one country. Is it wrong to want to give good things to your kids? What about the gospel? What about Christ? My status in this life does not define me. It's simply the location, whether I'm the starting quarterback for a football team, the prime minister of a country, or a mechanic in a small shop in Afghanistan. It is simply the place from which I love God, love neighbor, and love one another. And at times, I may need to remind myself in the midst of my lack that I am a son or daughter of the king and all the cattle on a thousand hills are part of my inheritance. And at other times, I may need to remind myself as I sit in luxury and comfort and am the steward of ridiculous amounts of resources that I am nothing but a beggar. I have no rights to claim before my king. And when my king tells me to give and live generously, it's not a question. It's a command. Lord, help us with this. Let's pray. Father, we we are overwhelmed by the applicational difficulty of these verses because this is speaking not just to a simple task with our hands, but with the lust of our hearts. And there's there's minimal minimal accountability to most of us in regard to this area. There are people able to see and know the way that we are stewards of the wealth that you give to us. So Father, we pray as as Romans 12 taught us to be conformed not to this world but transformed by the renewal of our mind. And we know that requires the work of the gospel and the power of your spirit. And so we ask that you would help us to see you in your glory on this Ascension Sunday. And to, and, and to, and to commit to letting you be our vision. And truly and deeply the Lord of our hearts. So that we live out as beggars in the wealthiest country in the world. Help us, Father. Have mercy on us. Redeem our flesh from the love of self and help us to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, 
strength and wealth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.